0: For the 97th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Nicholas Herbachowski, CEO and founder of the Drone Racing League. Let's face it, the world of sports is changing. Consumers are looking for options outside of the traditional sports categories like baseball, football, basketball, and hockey. This evolution started to take place several years ago when extreme sports started to come into the fold, and now esports has tremendous momentum with a rapidly growing audience. Now drone racing is also on the rise and is a sport that has a history dating back to 2010. It features a high energy racing competition that reminds me of the pod racers from Star Wars Episode 1 meets Formula 1 racing because it's actually taking place in the real physical world. Drone Racing League is the global professional racing circuit for elite pilots that fly drones at 90 plus miles per hour. Nicholas has a massive vision for the future of this sport, and you'll be able to catch the fourth season this year on NBC, Twitter, and other outlets. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Nicholas's background and how his experience led him down the path of starting this new sports league, a deep dive into the history of drone racing and how the drone racing league got started, lots of details on how this sports meets tech company operates, how he got investors, broadcasters and sponsors involved, his thoughts on the future of sports and entertainment, advice for founders on building a consumer brand, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. The tech industry in New York is thriving and the competition for talent is fierce. If you are hiring, you might want to consider adding a biz page subscription on VentureFizz. It is an employment branding and hiring solution that helps keep your company stay at the forefront of the New York tech industry. A subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at to learn the additional details. All right, well, without further ado, here's my interview with Nicholas. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you. Um, what you're doing is really fascinating. Uh, you know, so drones are cool, but actually drone racing is even way more cool. So uh, so I'm excited to talk to you about uh, what you're creating here, which is a whole new form of entertainment, uh, you know, sports, and the whole world of sports is evolving into these new generation of, um, of athletic tournaments and and whatnot so uh but before we get into that why don't we talk about your background so take us kind of you know going way back where'd you grow up what were you like as a kid all those yeah
1: Uh, so I grew up in uh the suburbs of Boston so just outside the city um
0: and which suburb Wellesley Wellesley awesome yeah
1: yeah yeah. so I grew up in Wellesley and uh sort of a, a you know Boston native and um, had a lot of family in the area. So it was great and uh, went to high school there uh, and then went to college there. So I didn't, I didn't stray far uh, from Boston uh, and I loved growing up there. Uh, I played ice hockey and a lot of other things very typical of, of life in Boston.
0: But how did you get into fencing? That's one sport that I'm always curious. There's a VC in, in, in Boston that is, he was a great, you know, fencer, I guess, uh, and, and did it in college as well.
1: Yeah, I, I started fencing in college. Um, I got to college and uh, I met a couple of fencers, and I had been an ice hockey goalie before, so there are actually some similar skills and overlap in terms of hand-eye coordination and reflex and stuff. And just, I just thought it was a really cool sport, um, and I met some people doing it, and it was a sport you could try out for. Um, so I went out for the team, and I made it, um, and started fencing. And it's just, a, it's an incredible sport. It's a beautiful sport. It's a really fast sport. Um, so it just worked out, and it was something I loved doing.
0: Like when I watch it for the Olympics, it seems so quick. Like you said, it's like, you know, they set up and then it's over in like a second.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It's a super fast board. And I, I fence saber, which is the, even the fastest of the weapons. you really just go in there? Um, but it's crazy. Like the more you do it, the slower it seems to go. It's, mm-hmm. it's bizarre. You really get that like time dilation effect where it just like slows down and you start seeing what people are doing with their hands, and with their feet. Um, so you, I guess it, it, when you first start watching it, it's definitely the fastest it's ever going to look.
0: Well, I guess as a goalie, probably that that's, you know, the puck coming at you is slowed down over the more you do it too.
1: Yeah, and it's similar in, the, in, in to being an ice hockey goalie in that a lot of uh, the way you get to where the puck is going to be is by sort of predicting a little bit. You see how people are winding up for a shot. You see how they're moving the puck and you sort of go to where you think it's going to be. And, and fencing the same way. that You're not trying to sort of follow the you know somebody's hands who are flying around you you're sort of predicting what they're going to do next
0: which i'm going to take this analogy even a, a step further so that's very much of being an entrepreneur and you're creating this whole new category right of going where the market will hopefully be versus where it is today
1: yeah no definitely that's that's part of the reality of uh, my job every day is you know you have to think about things where no one is yet i mean you really have to you know a lot of, a lot of my time in the early days of drl was just you know, explaining drone racing to people, explaining what I thought it could be, you know, the idea of thousands of people in an arena watching a live drone race, you know, a lot of, a lot of people were like, I, I can't envision it, like I, but, you know, and then we, we did it, you know, two years later, standing in London and there's thousands of people watching a drone race. And it's like, you can really bring this to life if, if you're really focused on that one goal.
0: Yeah well now what were some of your first jobs out of out of harvard and then what led you down the path of you know go, going back to uh, hbs for for b school
1: yeah so i um out of uh undergrad i went to bain and company and did consulting for three years um so got a very sort of traditional consulting background um and then uh at the time bain had this great program where at the end of three years they gave you six months to kind of go do whatever you wanted to explore uh, and i went to moved to la uh, and I started a film production company with a partner. Um, I loved film I, in, in high school and in college. I worked in film and special effects and just really wanted to get into the production side of it. So we uh, filmed it, started a company, we ended up subsequently made a couple independent features. Um, so it sort of satisfied my sort of creative film wanting to be part of the industry. Um, but during that time, I, I got into HBS and I decided I was going to go back and do it. Um, and, and went to business school. And it just made a lot of sense to me. I think, you know, I loved consulting. I felt like I got an incredible skill set out of it. Um, but I also knew I had these entrepreneurial leanings and business school was a good way to get that broad skill set that was going to be applicable for all the different things that need to do.
0: And then after B-School, what'd you do right after?
1: So after business school, I, I, uh, I actually uh, helped raise money for and start a, a small company. Um, it was uh, 2008, so it was kind of a strange time. From mm, Tough uh,
0: time, yeah. Yeah,
1: tough time, but, but, but we ended up sort of getting going through that company, ended up selling it after 18 months, and then uh, joined a much larger company uh, where I ended up running corporate development, um, got to lead us through uh, a high-yield debt raise, a, a, an IPO, uh, learned a lot about those sort of large company life stages that people go through. Got to be extremely hands-on, and... Picking underwriters and writing in S one and all these things, so it, it gave me an appreciation. Um, I like to say in that, in that five year period, I, I kind of had to be like two guys in a room with an idea, end of the spectrum, and the like uh, IPO perspective in the same you know small period of time.
0: And you've had lots of different roles too. It wasn't like you were just on this one direct path. You were kind of owning different parts of organizations.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, I, I moved around. You know, I think you know in the, in the small startup, it was sort of doing everything all at once, and then. It, uh, once I joined a larger company, I, I was in Corp Dev. Um, I ran our technology team. I ended up as the CIO. That was kind of my last role. So um, yeah, I really you know, got a broad range of experiences uh, in a relatively short period of time.
0: And then how'd you end up in a, in a brand that a lot of people recognize, Tough Mudder?
1: Yeah, I actually, I actually got a phone call from Tough Mudder um, and they were, you know, they were expanding their team. Um, I had wanted to move to New York. Um, I loved, uh, fitness. I loved what they were doing in the mass participation space. I just thought it was an incredible brand and incredible company and made the leap, uh, made the move up there. Um, you know, sports and, you know, obviously the film thing on the entertainment side, sports as well, kind of a passion. So it, was, it made a lot of sense to go into that area as well. Um, and that was another place that I held kind of a couple of different roles, ended up sort of mostly being in charge of both our marketing and our sponsorship team for a while. And that, taught me a lot about sort of the business of sports and digital marketing and things that I really hadn't had any exposure to before. So, um, it was an incredible learning experience while being part of a team that was building a a company that's just growing like a weed and, and, you know, reaching millions of people around the world.
0: Yeah. And I can see how that experience definitely parlayed into what you're doing now. So let's, you know, I guess, fast forward to, you know, uh, what you're up to now and like, uh, how did, how did you come up with the idea?
1: So uh, so drone racing actually has been around since about 2010. Um, so the idea for drone racing, uh, a couple of folks down in Australia, uh, some folks in France, all around that, that sort of 2010 time period, built these drones and put a little camera on it. And that gave them first-person view. It meant that they could look at a screen or put on a pair of goggles and see what the drone saw, which meant that you could fly a complex three-dimensional course. It'd be very hard to do that, what we call line of sight, which is when you're just looking at the drone. And that opened up a whole world of possibilities. And as soon as they figured this out, they started racing them. And from 2010 to 2014, drone racing spread all over the world. It's actually a pretty incredible story. And it was really through like, you know, message boards and Facebook groups uh, and, and meetups. People would sort of build these drones, meet up in the fields and parking lots and start racing them. And by the beginning of 2014, there were numerous organizations really making drone racing much more sophisticated they were building big grassroots league there were multiple people working on sort of professionalizing the sport trying to make a tv version sport and it was sort of all over the world going on Um, and that's when i found drone racing sort of at the end of 2014 there was this video that went viral of drones racing through a forest in france uh and it it, you know it was like they were like it's like star wars pod racing and totally it's exactly like that um and so it was just it was something on my mind and as i was uh, I left Tough Mudder at the beginning of 2015. I knew I wanted to start another business. I was exploring all kinds of different ideas. And drone racing just kept surfacing as something that people were passionate about. The more I learned about the opportunities and challenges of drone racing as a business, the more excited I got about it. Um, and it just, I always say like DRL is kind of like a snowball. It started rolling downhill. I didn't totally intend for it to start moving. And once it started going, it got way bigger than I expected to faster. And then suddenly, you know, We've got hundreds of drones in our office, and are broadcast in ninety countries.
0: Okay, but but how do you get started? Like you've got you know you've seen this kind of grassroots effort. Was it in the United States, and it was already like a collection of these? Yeah, it, it was
1: already it was already racing. Um, so you know, I, I met various people who were working on sort of the idea of drone racing, um, and I ended up encountering uh, through and I, I I did a ton of research, and one of the things that kept popping up was this guy named Ryan Gurry. Um, Ryan was sort of early in the drone racing scene. He'd organized drone races in Canada. He'd, he, he'd built a line of racing drones that people said were amazing. And, so, and I sort of basically stalked him online and uh, convinced him to meet me um, and shared what I'd learned about sports from Tough Mudder. And he shared for me what he knew about drone racing. Um, and it was kind of a magic moment. We said, okay, we, we kind of get the challenge. Um, that's that's why, you know, we understood why it was gonna be exciting, but why it would be hard? and. Um, that kind of got it rolling. And and one of the first things that DRL did as a company was actually acquire Ryan's company to get he and his engineering team and all their IP around drones on board.
0: Got it. So then you kind of had that also that credible expert in the industry that, you know, had a voice. And yeah. Uh, I'm assuming yeah. That, that that helped kind of get some early traction with the early adopters and maybe, you know, people starting to pay attention.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, although, you know, we, we've talked about this publicly a lot in mean, the early days of DRL were, were challenging. Um, you know, the, as I said, the history of drone racing, it's been around since 2010 for at least a year and a half before I got involved. People were genuinely dedicating themselves to professionalizing this, and creating something not unlike DRL. And um, we said, well, we're going to create it. We set off in the same direction around the uh, ran into some huge problems. Um, our first event was kind of a disaster of forms. It was something that we had big ambitions for. And then as it got closer, we realized it wasn't going to work. And we had to scale them back and scale them back. And we invited all these prospective sponsors and investors and we had to sort of talk our way out of it. Um, and what we learned underlying this whole experience was that the problem with drone racing, lots of people had the vision. Star Wars had already set the expectations um the coolness of the idea was pretty apparent from the minute and actually people around the world had solved a lot of different problems related to it but there was a huge number of technical challenges that just hadn't been solved There was a whole uh collection of technology that really needed to be invented to facilitate the sport and without that no matter how big your ambition was and however your dreams were you, you couldn't bring it to life it would never look like what you imagined in your mind or star wars if you didn't have uh a lot of technology that, you know, by the end of 2015, we realized just didn't exist.
0: And, and that's what I realized, the more I was poking into your business, I, was, I realized you're ultimately building a tech company. I mean, yeah. there's hardware, software, um, you know, the race courses. I mean, I mean, the complexity of what you're putting on is, is extraordinary.
1: Yeah, it's, it's you know, we, we joke sometimes DRL is really, at its core, we're a technology company because about half our team are engineers. We spend a lot of our time thinking about just like raw technology development and then we take that technology company and we wrap it in a media company because we produce all this media content for TV and then we wrap that in a sports league um, and that's what everyone sees from the outside is a sports league but underneath it um, what powers us is our technology uh, and the innovations we've had on media. And tech is the core of what we do. We couldn't do it without it. That's and it's, you know we we sometimes get asked like well why, why did DRL sort of become the dominant name in the space and why are you into over the world and the the answer is our technology and that's one of the things that made this sport attractive um, you know and, and as a as a would be entrepreneur thinking about my like different ideas one of the things that appealed about DRL was that there were genuine technology barriers to entry. Um, I would say that the best and the worst moment of my experience at DRL is when we kind of slammed into a wall because our tech failed. It was painful in the moment, but knowing how hard it was, knowing the opportunity to create novel tech to patent that technology to really build an IP base that would prevent anyone who just thought this was a cool idea from setting up a league, uh, really convinced me that there was a big opportunity
0: now, how does it all work? Like, how, do you, how do you decide wait, which drones? Because like, everyone's flying the same drones, right? So, how are those built? And then, how do you select the actual uh, competitors?
1: So, we uh, design the drones in house. Uh, we start from the ground up with a blank piece of paper and say, how do you build the ultimate uh, racing drone? Um, and in, in our case, it's really the ultimate racing drone for uh, televised drone racing, right? Drone racing can be watched by spectators in person and on TV. Um, so, our drones are fast, they're high performance, they're covered in bright LED lights, they're very durable because we crash them all the time and then we need to immediately go on and do more racing, so they need to be we can fix on the spot, modular design. So, you're solving all these different masters of the logistics of what you're doing and the audience requirements and the race requirements and high performance, uh, and we sort of, you know, balance all those different factors and then um, design a drone around that.
0: And now you're heading into a, a new season soon, right? The the fourth yeah. season of DRL. Yeah. So what's I guess what's next? Like what's the what's the how does the season work? Like how's the competition all undertake over the course of a? Sprint? Yeah,
1: yeah. So our, our season is is um is similar to other racing sports. It's a whole season of racing. Uh, so we bring in pilots and they um, compete across a number of events, and then there's a winner take all championship at the end, where the where the winner determines the season. But, you, you know, uh, one of the things that makes us different than, than other sort of early-stage sports is so our roster of pilots is fixed. So we actually recruit uh, 18 pilots into the league, um, and they come in through different means, and, and those are the people who compete across the season. So they compete in our regular season races, trying to qualify their way into the championship, and then uh, trying to win it all uh, in the championship.
0: Okay, so it's the same 18 all season long. So it must be competitive to actually get one of those slots.
1: It is. It's, it's, it's hugely competitive. Um, you know, one of the ways people qualify, uh, and it's another fun thing about drone racing, is we actually have a video game that will teach you how to drone race and lets you drone race against your friends. It's available on Steam. It's called the DRL Simulator. Anyone can download it. Um, it'll as they teach you how to fly. And then once a year, we have a big open competition called the Swatch DRL Tryouts. And it's an online competition. Everyone compete online. And then the top pilots come to a live eSport event. Uh, last year was in Vegas, or this year I should say it was in Vegas. We had over 200 pilots there competing, series of competitions. And the winner gets a $75,000 contract, gets a spot in the league, and basically, you know, overnight becomes a professional athlete um, and gets to travel the world with us. It's a pretty cool experience. Um, and I think for the, for the folks that have won it, it's, it's, it's life-changing.
0: And is this something that they're committing to full-time once they are like one of the 18 that like, this is your full-time thing. This isn't like a side hustle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our pilots are incredibly dedicated. They're practicing for hours and hours every day, both the real drones from the simulator. They're working incredibly hard. It's a hugely competitive sport. Uh, people, you know, dedicate a lot of time to it. So to stay in that, I mean, truly to be in the top 20 in the world, you need to constantly be dedicated to the sport. And it was one of the things that DRL was focused on from the beginning was to create an opportunity big enough that you could really have people who could make their living doing this. I mean, I think the the Swatch pilot is a good example, you know, to have a competition that ends with a $75,000 contract uh, to be a pro athlete is is a big deal. Like, that is a huge opportunity. And we had to build a sufficiently large ecosystem to support those kind of opportunities for the pilots.
0: And I noticed that you you're also have an element of storytelling. Like there's the, each pilot kind of has its their own narrative so that you're kind of bringing in the fan base to learn about these people as, as, you know, human beings.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the pilots are incredibly diverse. They come from all over the world, all kinds of different backgrounds, some from sporting backgrounds, some from video game backgrounds. Uh, and it, it just, every one of them has a different storytelling. We try to get that out there. I mean, you know, a lot of the question people have when they see these drones whizzing through the air so that's who are these pilots where do they come from how did they learn how to do this and so we get to tell all those different stories um and it's a a global sport which is very cool it's something that was really important to me um you know Tough Mudder was a global series I, I wanted to continue in that global genre there's drone racing all over the world our pilots hail from all over the world um and that makes a big difference because it means that you're not telling some U.S. story. You're telling a global story about a generation that's really coming into their own as these incredible pilots.
0: How did you get uh, investors to commit to this initially? I mean, obviously, it's a big, bold idea. It's a you know a big swing type of opportunity, yet not an, a simple one that most investors are like, "Yes, that's uh, you know a SaaS software company that I get the market."
1: Yeah. So we, you know, it was a it was definitely a little bit of a, of a meandering process. I got to say, you know, we had we had a big vision and a big goal. Um, and I think that actually helps a lot in this space. I think, you know, we weren't coming in and just small, we had this big ambition. Um, I think that we uh, cultivated relationships with people early on so that they could see our progress and we could, you know, they could believe that we were a team that was going to achieve what we were talking about. Um, we were very, you know, lucky. There's always an element of luck. We, we um, met some people who were incredibly supportive of what we're doing. So. Um, RSC Ventures, which is Steve Ross and Matt Higgins, they invest right at the intersection of sports and technology. Matt Higgins instantly got it. Steve was instantly supportive. So early on, we're behind us. Hippo Ventures, which is uh, a seed stunt stage fund out of New York. Um, they are really big picture thinking folks. They look at a lot of different kinds of companies. And we came in, they weren't like, this is too crazy. They said, okay, tell us more, tell us more. Um, so we, you know, I think there's a New York has a good seed stage community that's open to some big ideas. We benefited a lot from the fact that, you know, by the time we were out really raising money, we could look people in the eye and say, this is, this is, initially, this is gonna be a tech company and we're really gonna be developing technology. It's easier to raise money for that than to say, a, a sports league or a sports marketing or a video production company, something like that.
0: You've also announced some, uh, some deals recently with uh, actually the broadcasting side of things with NBC and Twitter how did those deals come about? And, uh, you know, as a spectator, how, you know, how can I, when, when, when can I check out the league? <laughs> yeah. So, you know,
1: we rolling it back in, in 2016, we had overcome a lot of the technical cha- core technical challenges. We'd, we'd done some racing and we filmed it and we had this content. And I would say in 2015, when we first started talking to broadcasters, they were in league, people were like, I don't, I kind of don't get it. But by 2016, we could go in and be like, let's just watch some drone racing and put one of our races on TV. And it opened up a world of possibilities for us. Uh, and we had a lot of incredible partners willing uh, to to join us and to put this content on TV. Um, and we had to make a really big strategic choice. And we uh, started broadcasting on ESPN, Sky Sports, you know, real premier sports networking uh, channels with huge reach and a lot of... Uh, authenticity and credibility. And it just gave the sport a lot of credibility from the beginning. It gave DRL a lot of credibility. Um, and it was incredible. But as we went on, one of the things we discovered was that a lot of our fans uh, don't have ESPN, right? They don't have access to that. And, and they're used to the ability to watch content on any device they want, anytime they want. Um, and we really felt this push and pull between um, the incredible experiences of being on premier broadcast TV and the fact that, um, our fans were sort of saying, but this isn't how I watch content. Uh, and we really decided to listen to our fans. So we we're really excited recently to announce a deal uh, that will broadcast to us on NBC as well as Twitter. So our fans can watch us through a uh, digital platform like Twitter, which is doing amazing things with sports, through broadcast television like NBC that doesn't require a special subscription. So it's been really nice in that way that we've been able to go back to fans and say, now you're going to watch it. But it was a big change for us because... It really was born from direct feedback from people saying, this is how I want to watch and I want to watch your sport. How are you going to bring these pieces together?
0: And how'd you go about getting the, the other sponsors like Swatch and the other companies that are sponsoring the league?
1: Yeah. So Swatch, Allianz, you know, um, Cox Communications, we've had a lot of incredible sponsors over the years. Um, I, you know, there's, a, there's actually like a pretty big and sophisticated world of sports sponsorship. So there's lots of companies out there that do it. Um, and I think DRL, Uh, came along at a really good period of time. A lot of the brands we work with are trying to reach young technology centric consumers. And the truth is, uh, you know, our fans don't watch a ton of traditional sports. Um, They're sort of not as into that. And I think a lot of these brands who have been involved with uh, major sports for a long time are starting to say, how do we reach these and and influence these young people who are, who are not going to watch that. Um, And I think we also were there, uh, you know, a lot of the challenge, uh, for us was convincing people to go into something truly new. Um, But we were lucky that eSports was just a couple years ahead of us and they were really breaking down barriers. And people laughed at eSports in 2014 and the idea of sports sponsorship. And by 2016, you had brands like Coca-Cola starting to go into it. And it made people in sports sponsorship. hey, wait a minute, we can't just look at the tradition. We gotta think about what's new. And so when we showed up, we had people saying, hey, we're looking for what's new and different. and I think it's it's worked out incredibly well. I think we've been able to you know bring on incredible sponsors. We've been to able to renew those sponsorships, we're able to grow them because we're really reaching the fans they want, and we're reaching those fans in the way they want to be reached. Um, we think a lot about you know sports sponsorship. When people think of sports sponsorship, they tend to think of like a banner on the side of a track or something like that. And our fans hate that. Um, they're pretty vocal with us. They don't want to be advertised to. They don't want a big banner on it. And one of the things that the way DRL is set up drone racing allows us to do is we create these surreal worlds. If you look at our races, which we call levels, um, they have fun names like you know, uh, Project Manhattan and LA Apocalypse, and we build these incredible worlds in there, which means we can authentically integrate brands and messages. A great example of that is the Swatch Gate. So we have a huge watch. It's a swatch on it that is part of our course that the drones fly through. We orient it horizontally, we orient it vertically, Get crash all the time into this thing, um, and you know we see our fans passionately debating like where the Swatchgate was in the course. That's the kind of engagement a brand like Swatch wants, not some logo in the background that people say, "Why you don't show me ads? I'm here to watch sports."
0: Yeah, it's definitely a lot more authentic experience.
1: Yeah, it's it's important, and I think um, it's where sports sponsorship is going.
0: Now, I'm a traditional sports watcher, right? I, I love the NFL. Um, probably don't watch as much baseball as I used to. You know, when the Red Sox started winning World Series, I kind of was like, all right, I guess, you know, that passionate desire is over. Uh, I watch more NBA now, though. But the future of sports is really interesting. I definitely want to get your, uh, you know, your perspective and, and vision of this because I think it was just a few weekends ago when the um, you know NCAA tournament was going on. I was flipping between the games, and I... It, ABC was broadcasting Overwatch, it, like, it, you know, it was the middle of the afternoon. I think, um, you know, Comcast in Philly just, you know, announced fifty million dollar investment in an esports stadium in Philly, right next to where the Eagles and you know the Sixers play. So, what do you think is the future of of sports and entertainment?
1: I think sports is going through a really interesting time right now. Um, I think you know everybody sort of saw that in the you know late. 2000-aughts, early 2010s, that entertainment really started to fracture, that you saw the rise of sort of the mega OTTs and and specialist brands, people saying, I want different kinds of content. You saw declines and things like people going to the movies and peak ratings on different shows, and and people understood that entertainment was changing and tastes were diversifying. But um, sports sort of seemed immune to that. I mean, it just couldn't get any bigger, and sports was still a central thing. And I think it's it's really started to change. I think um, that mix of other entertainment options is pulling a little bit of interest away from sports. Generally, I think people are want to watch sports that are relevant to their lives. And um, eSports came along and was really relevant to a group of people that sort of live and breathe technology and technology innovation in gaming every day. And it gives them an incredible sport experience. And so it's been, it, we're in a little bit of a period of disruption. But I think that's incredibly exciting because I think you know, if you ever go to one of the big eSports tournaments, I was lucky enough to go to the League of Legends World Championship a couple of years ago, and it is 10,000 people on their feet, screaming for three hours, having an incredible sports experience, right? It, 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 um, and I think, that you know, that the fact that they can have that tells you that they're um, they've found something that's amazing to them and they've found a community that's amazing to them, and something they can really root for and care about and I think that evolution is just going to continue. And right? DRL is part of that. We have fans that are getting into it that don't watch other traditional sports but, they, but DRL resonates with their lifestyle and I think, I think we're just going to see that trend continue. I think there's going to be sort of um, more new upstart sports that uh, excite people a lot.
0: Well, I think you're, you know, DRL, is, it, it bridges the gap maybe from the traditional sports watchers. Uh, to the, you know, people that are kind of more current of watching more the uh, e-sport type of category? Because you guys aren't, I think I, I saw you on a, uh, you were speaking at an event and, and you, you said DRL is not actually an esport company. You kind of have your own little nucleus of where you fit in.
1: Yeah. So it's, we can ask all the time. Are we an esport? Are we, uh, you know, a traditional sport? What are we? And we like to talk about the paradigm and, you know, there's esports and um, those are all in video games, and then there's real life sports. People call us the real life video game because right. a lot of common speed sports not in real life. We like to think of ourselves as a robotic sport. Ultimately, that's what's most different about what we're doing is we happen in the real world, but what's actually competing is a robot. It's a flying robot, and that allows you to do things like you know half our drones crash in every race, Well, hundreds of drones crash over the course of a level. that's you can't do that with, when there are humans competing in it. So it sort of changes the paradigm of what's possible. And I, I personally think we're on the, the verge of sort of a robotic sport revolution. I think as robotics improve, using them in a sporting context makes a ton of sense. Um, and it will create an opportunity for new exciting sport experiences. And I think a few years ago when I used to say that, people used to be like, yeah, but no one's gonna wanna watch a robot. Like, we wanna watch a human. And we see it already in DRL that, you know, those robots are controlled by somebody, whether they're pre-programmed or they're controlled in real time. And people will make that transition. People will say, I'm rooting for this pilot and that's his drone flying around. And they're rooting for the drone and they're rooting for the pilot. And they don't mind that it's a robot that's out there competing. Um, and I think that change in, in thinking and preferences opens up a lot of possibility. And you can imagine, I mean, you take a sport like football. If we had robots that could play football, first of all, you could have bigger games, you know, big, you know, further throws, bigger tackles and everything, but, but to eliminate some of the moral hazard associated with watching people, you know, at times injure themselves on the field.
0: Well, perhaps the, uh, you know, we see the, those uh, videos on YouTube from, is it Boston Dynamics with the, the robots? Yeah. <laughs> They're getting a little scary looking, but pretty soon those will be competing uh, in, on the line of scrimmage.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even Boston Dynamics is a great example. It's, um, you know, they have these, you know, kind of dog shaped robots that run and they run a little faster. And you know, I was watching that video with a group you the other day and someone's like, I wonder which one is fastest. Like if we put them on a track and you're like, that's the instant reaction. It's like, let's race these things. Let's see what goes faster. I mean, robotic racing is coming. You know, robots either sprinting or or running on all fours. I mean that that would be exciting to watch. And you could use very elaborate courses. So I think that's coming and you know, we like to say DRL is the first globally televised robotic sport. Um, but we won't be the last by any long time.
0: So cool. Now, if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to build this new consumer brand, right? Yeah. Like what advice would you give to entrepreneurs that are trying to accomplish something as big as what you're trying to accomplish? Like how do you even get started with, with traction?
1: Uh, that's a, that's a good question. It's, it's challenging. Um, I think that, um, You've got to break it down into small pieces. You've got to kind of know what the hurdles you need to get over. I think, you know, DRL is a good example that, you know, uh, I started and there were a whole bunch of things I thought might be challenging about doing it, but I really had to distill that down to the couple of things that mattered, right? In our case, it was, can we create technology that works and can we film this in a way that people will understand what's going on? And all the other things we thought about were sort of irrelevant if we couldn't accomplish those. Um, and it helped me zone in on uh, what we needed to do first. Um, and I think that, that that's really important. If you have a big, ambitious goal, you want to do something that no one's ever done before, understanding what the primary challenge is and focusing your energy on that out of the gate is critical because otherwise you can easily get lost. You can run into problems that other people have had in the past and just reinvent the wheel over and over again.
0: Got it. What about um, more on the, um, the balancing of your time? It sounds like you've got a lot of moving parts running this type of business. So what is the typical, and I'm saying this up front knowing that a typical week doesn't look the same. I'm sure it varies every single week, but like how are you able to, to juggle all these different moving parts and, 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 you know, keep things moving ahead. Uh,
1: first of all, I have an incredible team that I work with here at DRL uh, and it's really the people here that they juggle all those pieces and, Um, We have incredible subject matter experts in their areas, like, you know, putting on large scale events, filming and editing TV, building flying robots, all those things. Other people, Um, I have to wear a lot of different hats and I have to touch a lot of different areas. I think some of the, um, I don't know that I have a typical week. I travel a lot. Um, I think that's one of the most important lessons I took away from my early career is kind of you have to show up that if you want to build a business like this, where you're really going to Push into a new area. You need to be willing to fly, look people in the eye, share your vision with them, share your passion with them, if you want to get them on board. And we have a lot of different partners between sponsors and broadcasters, you know, uh, around the world. And I need to be willing to show up and, and uh, spend time with those people. So I think if you you took my average week, so to call, so to speak, several of those days, you'd be on the road to meeting with different partners of various kinds. Uh, and then when I'm in I'm in New York, I'm really trying to. Um, thoughtfully spread my time out across all the different challenges and opportunities we have and dip into the different ones and uh, provide a sense of continuity and a sense of leadership around it while also letting our incredible team you know continue to push forward uh, with what they know how to do
0: what's the size of your team now and what's the plan in terms of growth uh, you know hiring
1: yeah so we're a little over 60 people now um, and we are hiring aggressively We have lots of different roles in our technology department and operations department uh marketing Um, so there's like a real range of opportunities here at drl um we're a fun company because we're based right in manhattan so for a lot of people it's an opportunity to work for like a cool early stage company here in new york and you know you get to work on technology which is literally you know we build things that have never been built before we set a guinness world record for the fastest drones you get to live on the edge of sort of that futuristic tomorrow technology but we're also making a product in the form of our, our race content it reaches tens of millions of people around the world so you know you, you run into people at airports you meet fans places and like they tell you how excited they are what you're doing and it's very validating because it feels like wow, we're really impacting these people
0: and you get to work in a cool office space like your background right now with that street sign that looks yeah, amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah we, well we build all these elaborate three-dimensional worlds and and we put things in them. What's behind me right now is a giant uh, replica of an L.A. freeway sign. It was one of the gates in one of our races uh, in 2016 called L.A. Apocalypse. And it had a big glowing gate underneath it, but one of the drones missed and punched a hole right through it. Um, and when, after the race was over, <laughs> we just thought it was so cool we came in came back and hanging up in our office. I, I want to bring home something from every race. Our head of operations has told me I'm not allowed to do it because we're running out of office space, but uh, <laughs> it's fun to have all these different props and toys from things we've done.
0: That is does DRL still hold the record for the world's fastest drone?
1: We do, we do. We set that Guinness world record last year, uh, and it, was an incredible experience. You know, I think our technology team had worked incredibly hard to build all the tech for our season. We reached the end of the season. They wanted to do something different. They wanted to seem unique. And you know, we had this question of, well, what's the fastest one of these things could theoretically go? We have a real expertise in divide, devising these uh, powertrains for drones, sort of like the engine of a drone to make it go faster and faster. And we set out to build the world's fastest drone And a lot of different iterations, a lot of uh, drones that broke into tiny pieces as they went up in the air and just Learning from all of that, adapting our technology, we built a drone that we call the Racer X, and the Racer X uh, went almost 180 miles an hour in its world record run with Guinness out, very officially measuring everything with clipboards and measuring tape. It was it was pretty cool, and you know at the end it it hit the world record speed, and they hand you a plaque, and it, it was just another sort of milestone for the
0: company. That is so cool. That's so like, it's uh, it's really you know it's just fun obviously what you're building, but it's also you have these you know, challenges too of the technology to actually make it happen. So it kind of like feeds off of both kind of things that might motivate people.
1: Absolutely, as I say, I think, I think when we ask DRL employees like why is it satisfying to work here, we, we get a lot of that is that no matter what department you work in, you are, t- you are touching literally cutting edge technology. I mean like the stuff you read about in magazines, we're actually you know, in our office building, testing, designing, and that's a, that's a pretty unique environment to be in.
0: Yeah. Well, Nicholas, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing your background and history and, of course, everything about DRL. And I, I, I'm excited. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a fan now. Um, I started watching some of the clips, and it's definitely something that I think is going to appeal to a whole new generation, both you know, traditional and up-and-coming uh, sports enthusiasts. Well, thank you very much.